You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Thursday, January 25th, and there's a big chance that I'm going to upload the wrong podcast because I haven't uploaded Tuesdays yet, so I bet I'm going to get home, process both of these files on my laptop, and then load load one or both into the same slot. I did that, I think, a week ago. It's a two-sticky-note day. Thank you, Jeff from Slow Driving Florida, for asking a substantive question on a day when we had more scripture verses than usual. His question is about Romans 11 and replacement theology and grafting the Gentiles into Israel and will all Israel be saved, etc., etc. And that that's going to take more than an eighth of an inch on the bottom of a a sticky note or a post-it note. In case you were wondering, if you've never seen my show notes, it's the the Bible chapter reference at the top, then the show title, then then the scripture written down in little messy writing, and then at the very bottom, it's like somebody asked a question about this. That's why I keep it short enough for me to memorize. But this question, like I need to sort of chart out a little bit. So it's a two-sticky-note show, and that's okay because the Christian commute's going to be a little longer than usual. It's a rainy Thursday. I almost didn't go to work today because I, like I don't like to go to work in the rain. But I got here, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do for lunch? I'm going to go to the, the old-school Pizza Hut buffet in Chatsworth. So I'm driving to Chatsworth to get that Pizza Hut buffet in the old building with the red roof and it's dark inside with the little lights that hang down over the booths and that old falling apart Pizza Hut because I'm going to put those breadsticks away because I love them. So I'm, I'm breaking the streak of eating a six ounce sirloin steak at Fake Western Sizzlin'. Probably go there tomorrow. And I did go there Tuesday. It's a longer show than usual. That's what, uh, that's what I'm up to. Just living life. I know... I know Joel Alstein's a uh, false teacher, but sometimes it's hard to believe that I'm not living my best life now. I went to my in-laws' house for Christmas, not on Christmas itself. I found a Snuggie upstairs. I said, wait a minute, this looks like my Snuggie. I used to have four or five Snuggies. My wife hates Snuggies. I love them. She had taken my Snuggie and left it at her mom and dad's house. And it's been gone for years. So I found my Snuggie. It's the original puke green Snuggie. And I was working in my basement Tuesday, nice and toasty in my Snuggie. And I said, if you'd have told me 10 years ago when I lost this Snuggie that I'd be doing a job that I like in a basement wearing my Snuggie, I'd have said, sign me up. And even on the day that I have to go to work in the rain, I can go to an old school pizza hut. So... What a great life I live. Thank you, Jesus. All right, here we go. I hope you uh, don't get distracted by the navigation lady. I don't know how to get to Chatsworth by memory from my office. I can get there from my house, but not my office. 
Today's show title is Saving the Whales. We did Spearing the Whales last time. Now we're going to do Saving the Whales. Saving the Whales. Remember, remember 20 years ago, everybody was like, Save the Whales, man. Save the Whales. That's what Star Trek... Is it Star Trek 4? Is it Star Trek 3? Star Trek 4 is about saving the whales. Star Trek 1 is Star Trek the motion picture. Not a very good movie. Star Trek 2 is The Wrath of Khan. Great movie. Star Trek 3 is The Search for Spock. And I think Star Trek 4 is called The Voyage Home, where Captain Kirk and the crew go back in time in a stolen Klingon... (laughs) Bird of Prey... To get a whale and bring it to the future to save the Earth. That's the literal plot of the movie. Okay, but this is not a podcast about Star Trek movies. Although it could be, because I've seen them all. Save the whales. And We have a question from Jeff in the inbox, and that's it. That's the last question, so somebody better send me one, or we'll have no question Friday. We're in Matthew 27. We're We're almost through with Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. Verses 27 through 32. Verses 27 through 32. Pilate has returned Barabbas to the people, washed his hands of Jesus' blood, and handed him over to be crucified to prevent a riot. Then the soldiers of the governor, that is Pilate, took Jesus into the praetorium. The praetorium is the official Roman residence of the governor. Praetor is... I guess it's a Greek word, is the Greek word for a magistrate, in, or like a Roman magistrate, a very powerful one, and that's, that's what Pilate was. So the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. Now the Roman cohort are the foreign soldiers, the Gentile Roman soldiers, who are stationed in... Jerusalem to keep the peace and serve the interests of Rome and they're under the command of Pilate. This is a military occupation. Rome cannot govern the Jews without the Roman cohort there to maintain their order. So there's the soldiers there from the Roman cohort. Just as today we have American soldiers in Japan and American soldiers in Germany. Why? Because we beat them and our soldiers are still there. But we don't run their country. But Pilate was running things and he needed a Roman cohort to do it. So the Gentile soldiers are there and they're gathered around Jesus. Continuing. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They put on his... Sorry. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And put a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. So when you were crucified back in those days, you had to carry your own cross to the site of your crucifixion. It's just 
one more shame upon you, one extra little thing, that you have to carry the instrument of your torture and death with you. Jesus apparently could not do so because he'd been scourged and beat up. So he was so beat up he couldn't carry his cross. So they found some guy to carry the cross for him. Simon of Cyrene gets the, gets the shout out in scripture uh, until Jesus comes home. Now why are the Roman soldiers mocking him? They, their role, the reason they're there, as I've said, is to keep that order. They know there are Jews who want to be independent of Rome. And they are aware of who Jesus is and what he has been doing. That there are people who are saying, this is the guy. Could this be the Messiah who's going to free us? Who's going to lead us to independence? They know the talk about Jesus as well as anybody else in Jerusalem. So this is somebody they're going to see as an enemy. And when they, say, when they see Jesus rejected by his own people, they're going to mock him and be sarcastic. Oh, king of the Jews, now we got you. you. You think you're the king of the Jews? Here you are in the praetorium, and we're going to beat you. You're under Roman hands now. You're no king. We rule over the Jews, not you. That's, that's why they're mocking him and saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they dress him up like a king. Because kings, a king would wear a robe, especially a dyed robe. You couldn't go to, like nowadays you can go to Walmart and if you want a purple robe, you can get one. You can get whatever color you want. But back in those days, only high up people would have brightly colored garments. So that he's wearing a scarlet robe is like this is what a king would wear, a robe of this color. And they make a fake crown for him. They find some thorns and fashion a crown of thorns for him, which is going to be painful because the thorns are going to cut into your forehead. And they find a reed for him to hold because a king has a staff. And after they dress him up like this, this is after he's been scourged, they kneel down before him, mock, wor uh, not worshiping him, but mock uh, kneeling before him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they, the Romans, beat him. They take the reed that they gave him as his fake staff and they beat him with it. So the reed or the rod, like a staff, the, symbolically, that's what the ruler has to rule over the people with. And they take that and they beat him with it. The message here is you're no king. And if you were the king of the Jews, for real, we'd still beat you like this. So not only have the Jews handed him over to the Romans and said, uh, our blood be upon him, or his blood be upon us and our children, now the Romans are mocking him. And we know that Jesus could have called 10,000 angels to save him from that, but he didn't because he's got a mission to fulfill. Going to the cross is part of the plan, but the unbelieving Jews and the wicked pagan Roman soldiers don't know this. So we see Jesus undergoing this rejection and this humiliation. And we know from the end of the story it was for our benefit so that he could die on the cross for our sins. Jesus put up with not just the execution but the mocking. Guys, it's one thing to be tortured. And of course, I, you know, I've never been tortured before. Nothing even close. It's a really sorry analogy. I've been beaten really bad at sports before which is embarrassing. But there's one thing for somebody to beat you and beat you with class. There's another some thing for somebody to beat you and like trash talk you like, you can't stop me. That's really defeating. 
Now, I know that is that pales in comparison to what happened to Jesus, but he wasn't just quietly executed in an unjust way. He was mocked and betrayed, number one, by the very people who were supposed to accept him, the Jews, and then, number two, uh, by the pagans who rejected God, who rejected Judaism, who were, who were there in Jerusalem ruling as pagans in, instead of God's people. And for the Jews who believed he was the Messiah coming to set them free militarily, this would have been especially devastating. So just keep all that in context when you're thinking of what Jesus endured for our sins. Let's move on now. And I don't know if I'll finish this by the time I get to... Let's see here. What's the computer say? How far away am I from Pizza Hut? Eight minutes. I don't think I can finish... The question about Romans 11 in eight minutes. I'll tell you what it is. So Jeff from Northwest Georgia wrote in. Actually, he didn't write in. He dialed in. 470-315-0875. You can write in to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. That is SethDunn88 at gmail.com. And send me your question about theology or apologetics. This is the last one I have. I need somebody else to send another one. Also, I want to acknowledge the two people who wrote into the inbox and who, who said I could repurpose the Bethmore Cruise money for my new Y Rock Bridge or Y Cross Point initiative to pay for those pay for that website for not for the website but for the uh, pay for that domain and then pay for the advertising. I'm thinking billboard or direct mail. And then maybe Facebook targeted. I don't know. We'll see. That's what I'm thinking. And thank you for the people who donated money for that a long time ago, since the Beth Moore cruise will never happen. And uh, thank you for the people who are still listening after all this time and, and wrote in and said I could repurpose that money. So don't forget, I'm in fundraising mode right now to get money to advertise the Y Cross Point and Y Rock Bridge websites that I am building. Okay. But Jeff's question is just for the show. And Jeff has written in previously, recently I should say, well it was previous, but recent, about well, how, you know, how do you read the Bible? How do you know when to read the Bible literally and how do you know when to read it, read it spiritually? And I gave an answer about that. And now he has a question uh, about Romans 11 when it's talking about the Gentiles being grafted in to the tree and they're like they're the wild olive, but the natural branches being cut off, that being the Jews who've rejected Christ. He, he's saying, how are we supposed to view this? Is this, is this about literal Israel or spiritual Israel? Because Jeff, Jeff talks about how Paul gives his pedigree, um, Jeff calls it his biological pedigree, uh, about how he is a, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of Pharisees, etc., etc. Go on, Toyota Corolla. It's a four-way stop. Who's next? Am I going to go? I'm going to go. No, you're going to go? You go. You go ahead. You go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Japanese lady. You can drive. I don't think that woman's Japanese. She looks more Samoan. You know what? That's dumb. She's probably an Indian. I'm driving right by the chief fan house. I'm in the capital of the Cherokee Nation. It's probably a Cherokee. Anyway, what was I got distracted by a driver. Because we're talking about ethnicity, and we're considering the ethnicity or the Jews. So how are we supposed to, talk, to think about Paul talking about the Jews, ethnically or spiritually, in Romans 11? 
How do, do we read this literally? How does this relate to replacement theology? That's Jeff's question. I hope I'm representing his question correctly. Let me slow down here. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pause the show. I'm going to scarf down some Pizza Hut pizza. I'll have to drink a Pepsi instead of a Coke. I accept it because that's how Pizza Hut rolls. And uh, Church of God of the Union Assembly. Uh, That's Pratt's, I'm pretty sure. This show is not about Pratt's. Don't get distracted, Seth. Don't get distracted. We're talking about replacement theology. I'm going to pause the show, eat my pizza, and I'm going to come back. I'll answer that. I'll probably get to that question. It'll probably take most of the time on Highway 411 from Chatsworth to Cartersville. And then right as I get around the city limits, I'll I'll, uh, address the show topic, which is saving the whales. But for now, let's pause. Full of pizza and breadsticks, even though sadly there was no buffet today. I had to order off the menu. So after bragging about what a great life I was living, my hopes were dashed. Now let's talk about this question about Romans 11. And let me just say this as I pull out on the Highway 411. This is a good thing to be explained in a book, like an academic commentary that covers what's going on in Romans as a whole, talks about what's going on in Romans 10, and then explains Romans 11 in light of that. Because we're talking about Romans 11 now, but we have to really go back to Romans 10, because at the beginning of Romans 11, Paul asked the question, God has not rejected his people, has he? So that's at the beginning of Romans 11. You have to go back to chapter 10 and see how Israel's being rejected. And there's prophecy there about how they're not going to be faithful. And he's making Old Testament references. And then you go back into the context of the first century when the church is starting, where right after this crucifixion, and there are lots of Jews, Paul was one of them, who reject Christ. And we see the, the church attracting a lot of Gentiles. And think, think broadly. In Galatians, the reason that the book is written is because there's Gentile Christians being negatively influenced by the Judaizers. So there's this influx into God's people of Gentiles where there was a separation before. And we see that there's a lot of Jewish rejection of Christ. That's what's going on. And Paul in chapter 10 is talking about the history of the, the people of God being stiff-necked and reject him. This is, this is nothing new, all the way back to the days of Korah's rebellion. So you come in to Romans 11, and, and Paul says, God has not rejected his people, has he? And by his people, he means Israel, the nation of Israel. And I think this is what we would call the ethnic nation of Israel. People who are culturally Jews. I think the word that Jeff used in his question was biologically Jews. I am not a biologist or anthropologist. I don't know how the races look. I'm not entirely sure if you can 
DNA, they didn't know what DNA testing was. If I mean, if you can DNA, DNA test somebody and tell they're a Jew. Some people you can look at them and be like, that's a Jew. I can tell by looking at him that he's a Jew. But there's some people that are Jewish you wouldn't know. They look like a lot of non-Jewish people. And we all are coming from him, Sham, and Japheth, right? And the Jews are from Shem, Shemites, Semites. Okay. I don't know how that works out biologically. I don't, and I've talked about this before. What makes you a Jew? Do you have to have two parents that are Jews? Do they have to be believing, practicing Jews? If you got a Gentile dad or a Gentile mom and a Jewish dad or a Jewish mom, I don't know how that works. In the, in the old days in the South, we had miscegenation laws. Where, well, what, how, how do we know if you're colored or how do we know if you're black? And it was like, well, if you're one-eighth black, you're black. That was the miscegenation law. So I think if you had a, a black great-grandparent, you're black. I don't know how that works with, with Jews. There may be some Jewish tradition or something in the Talmud or something that I don't know about, like what they consider makes somebody Jewish. I know back in the first century, if you were a Gentile, you became Jewish by, by becoming a proselyte and you would be circumcised and in a sense convert to Ju Judaism. That made you Jewish. But that, was, that wasn't just about how you were born. That's who, that's who you're becoming and say, I'm getting circumcised. That's, being, that's saying, I want to be a part of the covenant people. And we can look in Jesus' genealogy and we see Ruth. We see Rahab. These are not, quote-unquote, biologically Jewish women, but their descendants are Jews, so I don't know, is it the dad? All that to say is it's really hard to define biologically Jew. And I don't think the ancients had a real grasp on biology. I don't even know if they had that word biology as a science. Probably didn't. So I think we at least need to look at things from a cultural or religious standpoint when we're talking about who's literally Jewish. But all that, let's get back to the question, God has not rejected his people, has he? And the answer is no, and Paul makes an argument about a remnant. And he cites scripture, and he, he recalls the days of Elijah, and Elijah says, oh, there's no slain your prophets. I mean, oh, it's, it's, there's none left but me that's faithful in Israel. And God says, no, there's 7,000 people faithful. There's a remnant. So what's going on in Elijah's day that Paul is talking about? In Israel, Israel, the northern kingdom, a wicked king and queen have taken over. I think it's Ahab and Jezebel. And they are involved in Baal worship. And we have the famous uh, God answer, whichever God answers by fire challenge, where Baal doesn't answer, and uh, God does answer for Elijah and consumes the sacrifices, and Elijah slays the, the, the prophets of Baal. But the king and queen, even after this great victory for Elijah, want to slay him, and Elijah has to flee. I think God feeds him with ravens or crows or something like that because he's out in the desert and everything to eat. And he's like, oh, there's nobody but me. And God says, there's still a remnant. So you think about what's going on historically when Paul has written, is writing Romans. I would say most of the Jews have rejected God. Just as in the days of the northern kingdom, most of the Jews had rejected God. 
But there was a remnant of Jews in Elijah's day who did not reject God. And just as there was then in the Old Testament in Elijah's time, there was what was now for Paul, there was now when Romans was being written, another remnant of faithful Jews. By the way, that included Paul. That included the apostles because the apostles were Jews. They accepted Christ, but most of the Jews didn't. And we only need consider Paul's story himself. He was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. But really, these are Jews who became Christians that he's after. And the Jewish authorities had sent him. And then Jesus uh, appears to him, and he becomes a Christian too. So the Jewish authorities, the leaders of the Jews... From the, from the crucifixion itself, from, from Matthew 27 itself, had rejected God and rejected Jesus. The powers that be in Judaism, if you will. But there was then, as there, I think there is now, because Martha asked about this the other day, a remnant. So there's a faithful remnant of the nation of Israel who is what we might call true Israel. Not a synagogue of Satan, but a synagogue of Yahweh. Those with circumcised heart. Because as Paul says elsewhere, it's inward circumcision that makes you a believer. Not the outward act of circumcision. But that could be lipstick on a pig. It's who you are on the inside, spiritually, that makes you a believer. Cutting off your foreskin doesn't save you. It's about your faith. Abraham had faith and it was credited to him as righteousness. Before, I might add, he was circumcised. Alright. I was about to pass this guy, but I'm just going to be stuck behind him going slow. Um, it's rainy on 411. I'm not going to try any uh, anything too aggressive on 411 in my little Kia Soul. Oh my gosh, this guy's going... I was on a roll! Theological, this is what happens. People slow down in front of me. So there is a remnant. Even though most Jews, thank God he's turning, even though most Jews had rejected Christ, there was a faithful remnant of God's people. So what Paul is saying, he's not rejected his people. In other words, all of the Jews, there are some Jews who he still accepts, that there's still a remnant, who are still faithful to him. And that's, that's, they're a part ethnically of the nation of Israel, but that's true believing Israel. That's the remnant. And then he, he, he starts saying about how some of the Jews have been rejected, but that's giving an opportunity for the Gentiles to come in. And this is where he gets his, his, to his olive branch or olive tree example. The branches that are cut off of the root or of the tree are unbelieving Jews. Man, they're gone. And wild olive branches that are grafted in, which were not originally part of the tree, those are the believing Gentiles. But who's there in the tree already not being cut off? The believing Jews. So the tree, and the tree represents the kingdom, or Israel, consists now of believing Gentiles and believing Jews. Not anybody who rejects Christ, 
So there's Gentiles who are outside of the tree and never get grafted into the tree because they rejected Christ and God did not pick them. He did not elect them. They are not his chosen people. Forget them. Okay? Now there are those who are a part of God's chosen people who reject the Messiah, who re ultimately reject God. Well, snip them off. Those branches are gone. This is, I think this is what Luther would say is visible church and is visible church. <clears throat> they were a part of the visible Israel, but invisibly they never really were a part because they have uncircumcised hearts. They rejected God. Now they're gone. Now what does this say in akin to what is called replacement theology? Does, does the church replace Israel? The answer to that is no, Israel's still there. It means that now the Gentiles are a part of Israel. And that's why I always say the church is Israel and Israel is, is the church. It's not like the whole Jewish nation was rejected. I mean, even thinking about it, think about Jesus in the, the parable of the wicked tenants. Who's getting tossed off the land? The Jews as specifically led by the Jewish leaders. The people who enticed the Jews to reject Christ. The people who said their blood be on us, or his blood be on us, and our children. Well, who's coming in to rent the vineyard? Well, now that's the Gentiles, okay? The people who would believe the people are going to pay the rent. But the Jewish people as a whole isn't replaced by the church because there's already Jews, who, the believing Jews, that remnant who never left the olive tree, who were never snipped out, who never rejected God. They're faithful. I think replacement theology is a terrible name because God only has one people, Israel, which is the church. It's those who have faith in Jesus. In Old Testament times, those who looked forward to the day of Christ, and in New Testament times, those who faithfully look back upon the day of Christ. Throughout history, believers were even look, looking to Christ or back on Christ. And now we're filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim His kingdom. Now Paul goes on to say that there's going to be a time, and we don't know when this time is, when he says the fullness of the Gentiles is, is complete. Like all the Gentiles are going to get saved, are going to get saved. And then at that time, somehow, the Jews are, there's, there's this partial hardening of the Jews, partial hardening of Israel. The fullness of the Gentiles happens, whatever that is. And then when that fullness is over, there's Jews who are going to believe and get grafted back into the tree. And this is generations, you know, it could be generations later. This is why dispensationalists, they, they look at this verse and they say, there's got to be this separate people of Israel and they're all going to get saved. But we know no one gets saved because of their ethnicity, because God does not show favoritism or partiality according to ethnicity. This is the lesson Peter learned. We're not saved because we're born Jews or born Gentiles. We're saved because we have faith in Christ. And if you lack faith in Christ, you're outside the kingdom. And we know for a fact, because we can just look at history, that there are Jews who reject Christ and, and are not going to be saved. 
If we look, there's famous Jews right now that aren't Christians. Woody Allen. I don't even think he's a and he's not. A, and, and some of these Jews are not even practicing Jews. They're just secular. Larry David. Okay. It's great that they're really funny, but nothing funny about hell. Okay. And you know those guys aren't dead yet. They can still repent. So in Romans 11, we see cosmically, metaphysically, if you will, that there is this time of the Gentiles where now that the the church or the nation of Israel or the kingdom, the olive tree has been opened up to the, the, the Gentiles and they're coming in. And we know the Jews are already there because, like I said, Galatians, like I said, or the Jerusalem Council and Acts, how do we handle the Gentiles who are now part of us? The Jews are like, well, do they have to keep the Jewish laws? Why? Because we're Jews. Christianity is a Jewish movement. It is because the Gentile Christians were coming in to be a part of the Jews led by Peter. Okay? It's Jewish. It just is. So there are going to be, we know this from Scripture, we know there are some Jews who are going to, who are going to be Jews, ethnically. I do, I'm passing a Jewish flag, a little Israeli flag right now on 411. Uh, there are going to be Jews, ethnically, who come to Christ. And, like, right now, I can't even identify who the Jews are as a religious authority. Like, I can't, it's hard it's hard for me to identify that right now because in modern Israel is a secular state. It's a secular state. And, like, there were Jews at the time. Like, there was still a Sanhedrin when Paul wrote this. After 70, that just is kind of gone. So it, it's almost like, well, where is the nation of Israel? And this is why I would say one of these responses, it's hard to do this on a podcast, it, it would require writing a book and doing a lot of study because someone would argue that, well, 70 AD, the temple's destroyed, there is no more Jewish authority. Now the, the fullness of the Gentiles has come and now there's going to be unbelieving Jews getting saved. We know all of Israel will be saved. I, I really think all of Israel's the church. And there are others on the other end who will come and say, well, you know, secular modern state of Israel since 1948 is this renewed Israel and all of them are going to get saved in the eschaton. So getting back to Jeff's question, are we to read this literally or figuratively? Well, Paul is using the figurative language. It's a literal letter. But he's using figurative language about the olive tree to make a point. And we know from the whole of Scripture that there is a literal or visible Israel. Northern Kingdom, perfect example. The Northern Kingdom of Israel, ruled by Ahab and Jezebel. But those people were faithless. Ahab and Jezebel are in hell, or are going to go to hell when their resurrection comes. Oh, here's Relevate Church. Not, not relevant, not elevate, Relevate. I always love to pass that place on the Christian commute. Okay. Ooh, there's a sign of the Seventh-day Adventist church. I just pass, I passed a kingdom hall on the way here, too. Ugh, driving around. There's so many lost souls out there. Well, 
Like I was the person, I got distracted by the Seventh Day Adventists and Relevate Church. Like I was saying about Ahab at the time, there's there's been there's a remnant. There was then, I think there is now, and there was in Elijah's time. God has not rejected all the Jews. But whoever Israel is, true Israel, true Israel, circumcised on the inside as a people, and we're under the new covenant now. Even the Jews who've come to believe are under the new covenant, not the old. All right. Mark this down. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. Slow down. Thank you. Mark this down. This day in history, a Kia Soul blew by a Pontiac Firebird. Why do you have a Firebird if you're just going to drive 40 miles an hour? What makes you think, I'm going to get this Firebird, this fast car, with no back seat to speak of, and just driving around not going fast. I don't understand it. It's like a pretty girl wearing a burqa. What's the point of being a pretty girl? <sighs> All right. Here we are in Fairmount. Bad drivers distracting me from the question. Oh, yeah, Israel. The faithful people of God are the true Israel, and all of Israel will be saved. It's hard for me to see now, especially since Jesus is king, prophet, priest, and king. You say, well, where is, where, where is Israel now? Who are the leaders now? Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And we're a nation of kings and priests, and Jesus is coming back. And all of Israel will be saved when he does. So I think the witness of Scripture, Jeff, not just this chapter, is that there is a true Israel, a believing Israel. And it includes people who were both ethnically Jewish and ethnically Gentile, who've come to spiritually know Christ as Savior. And that Jesus, came, the law was given through the Jews, and Jesus came through the Jews, and they were a witness to the coming Christ. And now he's come and we're under the new covenant. And I think under the new covenant, it just doesn't make sense to think about the Jews outside of the church. I just don't think it does. The Jews as a people and as an authority outside of the church. That's, the, that's what's in question here. And Paul is, I think, helping the Romans to walk through that. Oh, God hasn't rejected the Jews. It's all these Gentiles getting saved. Seems like the Jews have been rejected. No, only the unfaithful ones. So, Jeff, I hope that answered your question. All right, let's get to saving the whales. You'll recall that on Monday, even though, no, Tuesday, Tuesday, even though I haven't uploaded yet at this point, I did the show Spearing the Whales, and that show was about finding who the influencers are, the big money people are, at LifeBridge, Crosspoint, Community, Rockbridge, Heartpoint, Goat, Coffee Church, whatever they name it in your town. I'm... Could be Relevate, if you're in... fair. I don't know. Relevate could be the most Orthodox church ever. <laughs> or not. I don't know. But wherever the, the, the hipster coffee manipulate you emotionally playing Corey Asbury songs church is. You're going to find out who their whales are, who their influences are. You, you turn what that one guy towards the truth, you've done real damage to the, 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 their calls. Not the calls of Christ, their calls. Because they're building their own kingdom, in my opinion. But as I was giving that spiel, I thought, man, I sound horrible. 
Because it sounds like we should only care about the rich people or the, the people who are influencers. Sort of the opposite when we're trying to grow our church. When we're trying to grow our church, we're not out there trying to spear the whales and bring them into our boat. Because we want their money or we want their influence. Going after people because they're rich or popular is antithetical to Scripture. And we see that in James. James is talking about people who are already in the church. But we're not supposed to give preference to the people who are already in the church, whether they're rich and poor. But could you imagine, like, I'm going to witness to that person because he's rich and the church could benefit for his money. I, you know, I've got one hour to witness, and there's two people. I can witness to the poor person or the rich person. I'll pick the rich person because if I save the poor person, well, he's just going to end up costing the church's money. He's one of these guys who's going to come into church one Sunday. My refrigerator's broken. What am I going to do? And we have to gather money to buy him a new refrigerator. If we get the rich guy, well, he'll just give us everybody some refrigerators. You know, we don't want to think like that. So what I'm saying is beware if you have that mindset in your church. Because influencers, especially now on social media, is like if we get an influencer to rep our brand, lots of people will want to be like that influence and rep our brand. Has anybody ever seen that movie Mean Girls? It's one of my favorite movies. I think Tina Fey wrote it. And there's a scene where Re- Regina George, who's like the popular girl, but she's mean. And everybody wants to be like Regina George. There's a scene where, I'm trying to, I haven't seen the movie in a long time. I think she's cheating on her boyfriend and making out with somebody in the theater. And they get caught and she runs away. Or no, somebody takes her shirt from the, I forget what happens. Somebody takes her shirt. So she just is walking around in a bra. And instead of her being a a cause of reproach and being made fun of and mocked, girls start walking around in their bra to be like Regina George. So popular people who will, you think the emperor has no clothes type of deal, like whatever they're wearing, I want to wear. Whatever they they think is cool, I'm going to do that. Like, oh, they've got a Stanley Cup, a pastel Stanley Cup, I'm going to get a pastel Stanley Cup now too. Oh, that person has the Air Jordans. I'm, I'm going to get Air Jordans too. I mean, you talk about an influence. Michael Jordan. Be like Mike. Mike drinks Gatorade. You should drink Gatorade. Mike wears Air Jordans. You should buy $200 Air Jordans. Okay? Talk about he, Michael Jordan might be the ultimate influencer. But on a church scale... We do not want to cater to or specifically target people who are influencers or rich or popular just because we, we think they'll benefit the church or draw others. That's showing some kind of favoritism. And by the way, from a worldly perspective, usually the popular people are popular with the world because the people of the world love the things of the world that this person represents. Not because they found Christ. Think about if you're a super popular person and you're worldly and then you find Christ, the worldly people aren't going to think you're cool anymore. They thought you were cool for being worldly. I think I've talked about Little Richard before. Little Richard did all these sexual songs, all these R&B risque songs. He himself was a homosexual. And then he found religion and went to Bible school, albeit Seventh-day Adventist Bible school. 
and all of a sudden Richard he wasn't influential anymore. Nobody wanted to hear him, and eventually he needed money, so he went back to being worldly little Richard. Uh, what was the guy's name? The guitarist from Corn, which is one of these pagan ungodly bands. Oh, what was that guy's name? Was it Wes? I don't know. I don't listen to Corn, um, but he got saved and he came out of Corn. And he was like, oh, yeah, I'm the, I'm the guy from Corn, but now I know Jesus and I'm not going to be in Corn anymore. Yeah, well, you make your living by being in Corn. Eventually, you're going to run out of money and have to go back to Corn. Because all the people who are paying to keep you afloat don't think you're cool anymore. When I was young, here in Cartersville, I won't name the church. If you're from here, you can probably guess it. When I was young, here in Cartersville, and you're like, Seth, you usually name them. Well, I'm just being nice right now. The church that I went to when I was young, the youth group that I went to when I was young here in Cartersville, hired a new youth pastor. And unbeknownst to me, this new youth pastor was instructed by the powers that be at the church. I don't know if it was the deacons or the... The lay people who were running the church, you know, this church is Wales, or uh, I don't know if it was a senior pastor. I have no idea who told him to do this. But it was basically whoever was in charge. They told him to go after the popular kids in town, teenagers, popular youth group kids, to get them to come to youth group so that other people would come to youth group. That was 100% about growing numbers. It had nothing to do with souls because that popular kid's soul is no more valuable than some other kid's soul. Listen, you want to invite everybody to Christ and disciple them through the youth group or whatever. If, if you meet a young person in town and he comes to Christ, good. Maybe he's popular, maybe he's not. And I like to think of it in terms of real people. I'm trying to think of this. Oh, let's think of a popular person. My friend Brandon Dial. Right, he was my partner in tennis uh, my senior year, but I, play, you know, he was on the tennis team with me. And uh, this is a buddy of mine, Brandon Dial. Good-looking guy. Okay, athletic. I mean, he's not like a star football player or anything. Uh, we had Ronnie Brown. You know, Ronnie Brown, the NFL player. So let, Ronnie Brown's good-looking too. Okay. And Ronnie Brown's carved out of stone, and Ronnie Brown could have played pro baseball. So let's, let's consider, we'll, we'll get a black kid and a white kid. Two different levels of score. So we got Ronnie Brown, carved of stone, state champion, all-star in baseball, all-state in football, future NFL draft pick, first-round draft pick. And then Brandon Dial, who has no such aspirations, but, you know, some pretty boy wearing Abercrombie in 1999. A super nice guy. Everybody liked Brandon Dial. Okay? His girlfriend, Claire Sandlin. Most popular, prettiest girl in school. Rich parents. Claire Sandlin was popular. Okay? We'll throw Claire Sandlin into the mix. So, here are the good-looking, popular people. Right? Basically, this youth minister is being told to get these people to come to church... So the people who want to be like them will come too. 
Now, Brandon, Claire, and Ronnie all have souls that are important. We don't want their souls to go to hell. But why should they get more attention from the youth pastor who's trying to evangelize the kids? And this is where we get the idea, are you a youth pastor? Are you a pastor of the young people who are regenerate in church? Or are you a youth evangelist? And it's your job to get out and find lost people to come to church for your youth group. And this is why youth pastors and youth programs are mostly stupid. Okay. Now let's think of Albert Jones. Okay. Albert Jones had a really good-looking sister. His sister was popular. But Albert Jones was just unpopular, unathletic, pudgy, not good-looking, terrible sense of fashion. I, I'll never forget this. I was a sophomore when I when I graduated to, or graduated when I transferred to Cartersville from from Central High in Tennessee. So for those of you who are trying to steal my identity over the years, there's another piece of the puzzle. I went to Central High School and, and then I'm in Chattanooga or in Harrison, Tennessee, and then we moved to Georgia and I came to Cartersville High School. Okay, so there's a piece of my background for those digging it up. And so I didn't know anybody from Adam. And I'm in my physical science class. And Albert Jones is sitting there. And he talked like this. This is how he talked. So he was even a nerd in how he talked. And he's wearing a t-shirt with a tennis ball on it. I want to know about tennis here. I was the number one ranked seated guy on our tennis team. Not because I was the best in school, because the two guys who were better than me didn't play tennis. Because where I went to school, tennis was not a very popular program. But you know, I I came up as a member of the racket club in Hickson. I went to tennis camps. I had private tennis lessons. My sport is tennis. I cannot beat you at basketball, football, or golf, but I will drill most of you in tennis. Okay? That's my sport. So I'm interested in, well, you know, the tennis team who plays tennis. So I see this guy wearing a tennis ball t-shirt. Hey, man, do you play tennis? You're wearing it, parentheses, you're wearing a t-shirt with a tennis ball on it. And he got like offended that I asked him, like, well, you know I don't play, you know, this idea is like, you know I don't play tennis. I'm sorry, I don't know that you're king dork and you're unpopular and you have a tennis ball shirt on, but you're not good at tennis. And he wasn't on the tennis team because he wasn't good enough to play. Maybe I should have looked and noticed that you're wearing socks with Birkenstock sandals. Not the... Not the clog Birkenstocks, but the Birkenstocks with the straps. You're wearing crew socks and jean shorts with socks and sandals. Probably not the athlete I thought you might have been. But anyway, he was a jerk. And this was probably the most unpopular kid I could think of. And he had nerdy, unpopular friends. Like Derek Harrington and his face full of acne. And Derek Harrington probably couldn't throw a baseball 200 feet. Sean Giles, another guy with a pretty good-looking sister, but not, not very popular himself. Now, but, but Derek Harrington and Sean Giles are nice guys, okay? But they're the guys who are going to like go read a Dungeon and Dragons magazine in Derek's basement or something. I don't know what they're unpopular. I don't know what they like. They're just weird, okay? But these are the type of people. Ignore those guys, Tim Samples. That's the youth minister who told me that. He told me this. That was the name of the youth minister, Tim. He was told that. Ignore those guys, Tim. 
go after they didn't say ignore him, but they told him to go after the popular guys. Because if Derek Harrington comes, a flock of people is not going to chase after him. Well, what about Derek's soul? What about Sean's soul? What about Tripp's soul? Sorry, they're not popular. They're not influencers. And it turns my stomach. And I think it really offended Tim. And it turns my stomach that there were people who thought, this is what ministry should be, especially youth ministry. Get the popular people. And others will follow. It's just plain sickening. Christ was popular until he wasn't. How popular is Christ in the middle of Matthew chapter 27? How popular was it when Thomas said, Come, let us go and die with him. That's sickening. Those were people basically running a church and deciding what youth minister to hire. Could you imagine being a youth minister, being a 40-year-old guy with a family? I guess he would have been, how old is he? He's 50. It was 20, 25 years ago. Late 20s, early 30s. Young kids with a wife. You moved from Gainesville to Cartersville, so your wife doesn't have a job because y'all moved. You're probably making $40,000 a year. I'm talking about in today's money. Forty, fifty thousand dollars a year in today's money, because they they pay they pay youth people slave wages, okay, for all the work they do. You think about all the work a youth minister does. Like fifty thousand dollars a year is not slave wages, but if you think about all the work a youth minister does, like that hourly rate ain't that good. Talk about what they have to deal with. You better pay me two hundred and fifty G's if you want me to sit on an eight-hour bus ride to Mississippi with a youth group. Pay up, okay. And this is his job and how he supports his family. And he thinks, the people I answer to just told me to do this unholy, wicked thing. What am I to do? You think that that little anecdote I just gave you is the only time that's ever happened? Give me a break. When I was, I don't know. When did war? I'm 41. How long ago did was it that War Room came out? When War Room came out, there was going to be a companion Bible study and DVD kit, etc., etc. And Lifeway was pushing War Room. Here's how Christian movies work: they don't they don't buy an ad during the college football game and say, "Come see our movie." They send. They, tell, they send a packet to church and say, tell all your Sunday school teachers to tell people to see this movie. Like, you got to see it. You got to. They had a screening of War Room at one of the local churches in the, in the uh, sanctuary, like on a Thursday night, because, you know, all the churches have a big projector screen. And it was before the movie was released. And the Bartow Baptist Association told all the churches, we're having a free screening of War Room. Send the influential people from your church to watch it. With the idea being, they'll go back and tell all the people that they're popular with at church to watch the movie. Not, hey, let's get, come give me your opinions about whether this is a good movie or not. Because that's what they do with screenings of movies. 
If the, if the ending is too sad, they'll change it. I think that happened with Blade Runner. You know the ending of Blade Runner when, when Deckard has Rachel and it's a, he goes to a voiceover? Rachel was different. No expiration date. That's not how Ridley Scott wanted to end that movie. But Lifeway knew if it let the influencers go see the movie for free, that they'd go back and nod their heads at their Sunday school classes. But, oh man, you gotta go see War Room. So, and here's another Tim Sample story. There he goes again. I was at Expedition Church at the time, and Tim said, why don't you go see the movie, Seth? Not that I'm an influencer, but we got 20 giving units at church. <laughs> and he knows I'm interested in what Lifeway's doing. But all these church had influencers. These are the people who get free movie tickets. You know who they are at your church. And the evangelical industrial complex uses those people to sell you their stuff. If you want me to go see your movie, put out a trailer. If it looks good, I'll go see it. Or if my friend says it's good. Or if I, if I, if I see, and it could be my friend Brandon Dial or my friend Derek Carrington. I don't care which one's more popular than the other. I'm going to listen to him. Or if I read a review, like on Yahoo or on Google or whatever, of the movie. And I think, oh, this, is, this, seems, like I should, this seems like a good movie. But don't get my Sunday school teacher to tell me it's good so I'll go. Influencers. So what am I getting at? Well, first of all, I have to decide if I have to go south or north right here to get home. South it is. Don't be a church that tries to save the whales. We're out to evangelize everybody. If you turn your church into a popularity contest or a place to be seen, that's exactly what it'll be. And you'll have... Middle school girls, mean girls, Baptist church. Whether it's like a little high school with drama and cliques and infighting and jealousy. You know, if you try to go get people because they're popular, that's exactly the, the kind of environment you'll cultivate. Imagine, if you will, being a spiritually mature little kid. Now, we know, statistically speaking, the youth group are among the most spiritually immature or least spiritually mature people in a church body. Why? Because they haven't been as long alive as long as the other people. If you're 16 and you got saved when you were 10, you've been a Christian for six years. If you're 60 and you got saved with your, when you were 10, you've been a Christian for 50. That's just math. But imagine being a person who's legitimately saved in this youth group. And you understand what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a holy people of God. And you understand that you are supposed to go to the youth services. It's Wednesday night youth services. You're supposed to go with the youth to the youth building. Sunday morning, you're supposed to do the youth worship. There's a youth trip, and you're, these are supposed to be the Christians that you hang out with. And the people who are involved in those things 
are as worldly as the people who don't go to church. They're promiscuous, they drink, they cuss when they're not in church, and these are the people they're in church to be seen. Is that what you, what are you going to think of your church? Think about it. You want to be that kid? And let me tell you something. I've had conversations with with children about this, or with, not children, but with, with teenagers about this. I remembered when I was involved in the youth ministry at Expedition Church, we had a girl who, her dad came to that, to Expedition, and she'd had a rough go at it. Her dad was a minister. His name was Roy. His dad, I think he had, he worked at a church, as a church planner, not a particularly successful one. And he tried to be a church planner out west, like in New Mexico or somewhere like that, where that's 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 hard. That's a hard ground to dig out there, and that's a stressful life. And he thought he was called to the ministry, and his wife, the girl's mother, finally left him, and he had gotten divorced and remarried. So this girl had, I think, her dad had custody. Her dad was, for all intents and purposes, a failed preacher. And when you talk to this girl in Bible study, she knew her stuff. She got it. She understood the Bible. And our little youth group was small. And it, it, it wasn't segregated between middle school and high school. I mean, it was like sixth grade to senior in high school, you know. And I think finally her dad went to a bigger church in town. Nothing wrong with being a bigger church, but their family went to a bigger church. And then I saw her back one day. And I was like, hey, well, what, what are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. You're back here. And she's like, well, you know, I was at church XYZ. And the kids, it's phony. The youth group's just full of phonies. They don't really believe. They just... They drink and then they cuss and they sleep around, basically. You know, that's the kind of things teenagers do. Have you ever seen the movie Footloose? It's the kind of things that the town bans. <laughs> you know, typical teenage behavior. That's fine. I mean, it's, it's some of that's sinful, but it is what it is, is what I mean. But it should be different for Christian teenagers. Like, just as a Christian adult is supposed to be different than a non-Christian adult, a Christian teenager is supposed to be different than a non-Christian teenager. And she was discouraged. She's just like, the place over there, they're just phony. And again, I won't tell you the church she was referring to because I'm being nice. But it is how it, that, that's how it is, is a lot of these youth groups because you got people trying to save the whales. I thought it was important to do this show because I made such an emphasis of spearing the whales, that is to dismantle coffee church by going after the people who have money, power, and influence there. But I want to make a point that I'm like, I'm not saying evangelize rich people to your church. I'm saying is this is how these churches are built and that's how you knock them down. That and prayer. Probably prayer first. But I didn't want to sound like I was saying, like, oh, yeah, you got to get the influence, blah, blah, blah. 
if your church is the kind of place that's propped up by whales and influencers, I pity your church. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again. Oh, tomorrow, Friday. Figure out which whales to spear and which whales to save. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.